0: Okay, so we we begin the way we've always been beginning these sessions, by remembering what T.S. Eliot said in Little Gidding, which is the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. So we want to start where we want to end up, which is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, because that is the great Trinitarian mystery into which we are being summoned. But as the Australian theologian Tracy Rowland notes, quote, the possibilities for participation in the life of the Trinity can be either thwarted or enhanced by cultures which are more or less impervious or receptive to grace and the cultivation of virtue. End quote. So, as I've said in earlier sessions, culture matters for not only the willingness to consider the Christian proposal. But the very ability to experience Christian truth is profoundly determined by cultural influences, most of which today predispose those exposed to them to a superficial and unappealing view of Christianity and blind them to its incomparable role in ennobling our lives and shaping our civilization. Passing on Christian faith and thereby preserving what is best in our civilization is a moral responsibility. Like all moral responsibilities, it can be expected to meet with resistance. As Dante said in the Divine Comedy, if half-friend of truth I mute my rhymes, I am afraid I shall not live for those who will think of these as the ancient times. How many today share Dante's concern for those who will come after? I'm reminded of the journalist Mark Stein returning from England a couple of years ago. He said every conversation I had there ended with my conversation partner saying, well, I'm glad I won't be around to see it. He said, I thought it would become the British alternative to have a nice day. <laughs> but, of course, if one says, I'm glad I won't be around to see it, that's only because they've already begun to see it. And it also means that they are abandoning their responsibilities our theme this month is what is happening in history history and hope and it's not only about what is happening in history but about history itself as christians we know the nature of history but we don't know the content of it we know how it's going to end and we know the nature of it we don't know the content of it. we don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now or tomorrow or next week but we know the nature of history, and we know how it's going to end. We don't know in detail how it's going to end, but we know a great deal about history and so we live with a certainty about history surrounded by all kinds of uncertainties about history in terms of its content. So I want to think tonight about what it means to be in history to inhabit time as a follower of Christ. How did Christ inhabit time and what does that teach us about inhabiting time? To be equipped for working in our time, writes Saunders von Bulbasar, we must get a grip on history, quote. But what we call history is a particular way of experiencing time, a way quite different from the way that most people who ever lived experienced it. For example, Mirce Iliade, the great historian of religions at the University of Chicago, wrote, quote, Indian thought has refused to concede any value to history and traditional India has no historical consciousness, end quote. Octavio Paz, writing about the indigenous cultures of the Americas, writes, quote, Mesoamerican civilization negated history. From the Mexican high plateau to the tropical lands of Central America for more than 2,000 years, various cultures and empires succeeded one another and none of them had historical consciousness. Mesoamerica did not have history, but myths, and above all, rites, rituals, quote. The philosopher Karl Lowith says, quote, To classical antiquity, the course of history appeared not at all as a course, but as a cyclical succession of identical phases, never experiencing a new transformation directed toward a definitive goal in the future. Thus, every idea of progress was inaccessible to the philosophers of antiquity. Even the most sagacious of them rather shared the popular belief that the contemporary state of things was far inferior to that of former times. End quote. That is to say, a typical example of that would be the Golden Age and then the, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Kali Yuga, as the Hindus would say. In other words, everything degenerates. And in that last degenerative stage, there's a total crisis, a total meltdown, and to mix mythological metaphors, out of that conflagration, a phoenix rises, and you're back into the golden age. That's the way the world works in the ancient world. The ancient pagan world was a world of cyclical repetition, not of history in the way that you and I think of it. The sociologists Rodney Stark writes, quote, Christianity was oriented to the future, while the other major religions asserted the superiority of the past, End quote. He writes elsewhere, quote, the assumption of progress may be the most critical difference between Christianity and all other religions. With the exception of Judaism, the other great faiths have conceived of history, either as an endlessly repeated cycle or inevitable decline. Mohammed is reported to have said, quote, the best generation is my generation, then the one after that follows it, and then the ones that follow that, end quote. In other words, the goal in Islam is the restoration of that pristine 7th century caliphate. There are two questions about all this. One is, why did our ancestors not have what Octavio Paz and Mircea Leade and many others have called historical consciousness, and why do we have it? To answer these questions, we have to try to understand the origin and meaning of the ancient world's cyclical concept of time. And for that, we have to try to understand the origin of human culture itself. Last month I said we know that human nature has appeared on the scene when we find instances of non-instinctual self-sacrifice. Animals put themselves in peril's way instinctually, but only humans are capable of non-instinctual acts of self-sacrifice. So that's a measure of when humanity shows up on the scene. A measure of when human culture shows up on the scene is whenever you can find evidence of ritual blood sacrifice because culture begins with ritual blood sacrifice. And to explicate that, I'm going to be drawing on the work of René Girard. In the interest of time, I will admit to you that I must leave aside a number of the most fascinating features of Girard's anthropology of cultural origins, including such things as the divinization of the victim, the sacrificial origin of all social institutions, the emergence of kingship and priesthood, and the ambiguity that haunts their social preeminence and other things, which we may want to discuss later or in future sessions as time permits. But now let's think about the origin of human culture. Everywhere you go in the world, if you find evidence of an ancient culture, at the center of that culture will be a religion. At the center of that religion will be an altar of blood sacrifice where victims are slaughtered. And if you have any information about how the people who participated in that ritual understood the ritual, it will tell you that they saw that ritual as a reenactment of the event that brought the world into being. So once Girard discovered this, he asked himself, what must that event have been? And he begins with something called mimetic desire. It's absolutely essential to his understanding of our predicament. Now, the word mimetic simply means imitative. Mimetic desire is the most obvious and the least analyzed aspect about us. And the story that I so often tell that uh, helps us understand it is a story of the children in the nursery. There's a nursery. Children come to be cared for for a couple hours. The first child comes to the nursery. He's the first one there and he's bored. He's waiting for his friends. The room is filled with toys, of course. So out of sheer boredom, he walks around. Finally, he sits down. He happens to sit down next to a teddy bear. He's not interested in the teddy bear. He's waiting for his friends. But He begins out of sheer boredom to play around with the teddy bear, to flip its ears and, you know, knock it around and so on. But He's not interested. He's bored. The second child comes in. What toy does the second child want? Everybody knows that. Even non-parents know that. The second child wants that teddy bear. He goes over and he reaches for it. And then the first child says, yeah, go ahead and have it. I really wasn't interested. No, he grabs it. And he says to the second child, I wanted it. I had it first. It's mine, you see. And if you imagine the second child is very precocious, has a great vocabulary. He says, no, I noticed you were really bored. You weren't interested in it. I'm the one that wanted it first. And then they start squabbling. Of course, they're both right. Neither one of them really wanted it until the other one wanted it. That's called mimetic desire. Madison Avenue knows this about us. We might as well know it about ourselves. A gesture of... Acquisition, some kind of indication that an object is desirable awakens in us a desire for it. We feed on other people's desires. so these two children now become more and more desirous of this teddy bear the more the other one is thwarting their desire. So the competition escalates, and now they're pulling at this teddy bear. They really want it now. I mean it's really a big deal. you see that's mimetic desire. Now, if you switch from that to the judgment of Solomon scene in the Old Testament, you have an identical situation. You have have two women claiming this child. And Solomon, in his wisdom, says, well, we'll solve this problem. We'll cut it in half. You can each have half. And the woman who's the false mother says, fine, fine. And the woman who's the true mother says, no, no. Let her have the baby, and Solomon, in his wisdom, understands the situation. I will tell you, when René Girard read that, after he had done his anthropological work, he thought this is a text that understands that conflict is resolved in one of two ways. There is no third. Either it's resolved with blood sacrifice or it's resolved with self-sacrifice. I'm going to introduce to you a word that's very important for understanding this. It's a very important New Testament word, which is scandal. Scandal is when I become more preoccupied with my rival than I am with the object over which the rivalry began. So the false mother says, fine, I'd rather have the child dead than her have it. In other words, she has become so scandalized by her rival that her interest in the object has disappeared, and all she wants to do is foil the desire of her opponent. You see, I mean, she has become scandalized by her rival. Now, the true mother says, no, let her have it, surrendering her own claim to it for the sake of the child. Two forms of sacrifice blood sacrifice and self-sacrifice. It's very important for what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, if you go from that to a pagan world, we come upon this sort of cartoonish idea of throwing the virgin into the volcano. This has become a joke for us, this kind of motif, but there is something to it. In that situation, the virgin would have been desired by two rivals. And not only two rivals, but two rivals who were members of two clans in the tribe or two tribes themselves. So that this is a very important rivalry. It could cause a lot of bloodshed, you see. And so they just throw the virgin into the volcano. You destroy the object of desire in order to resolve the conflict. I'm getting way ahead of myself in terms of the origin of culture, but I'm trying to show that this blood sacrifice was efficacious in the ancient world. If The Greeks and the Trojans had thrown Helen into the volcano. They wouldn't have spilled all that blood on the shores of Troy. You see what I mean? There wouldn't have been a Trojan War. It works. It's efficacious. You can destroy the object of desire and resolve a conflict. Imitative desire creates rivalry. The rivalry builds up, leads to violence. And then the question is, how do you solve the problem of violence? So let me back up and look at it this way. An acquisitive gesture indicates the desirability of the object towards which the gesture is made. If I reach for something, I indicate to anybody who happens to be around that that's a desirable object. And somebody else thinks, oh, I think I would like to have that. You have two hands reaching for one thing, you have conflict. And then the conflict escalates the same way it did in the nursery. The two rivals for this object begin to assert their claim to the object. And two things happen. The heat of the conflict or the rivalry intensifies, becomes more heated, more vociferous, and it draws others into it. People in the vicinity look and they see, oh, this is fascinating. Whatever it is they're arguing over really is something important. And pretty soon other people are drawn into it. And eventually it spills over into violence. Violence is incredibly mimetic. Turning the other cheek is the hardest thing in the world to do in a, in a crisis like that. So once the violence breaks out, it spirals around. And after a while, nobody can remember how it started or what it's all about. It's like the Middle East, right? It's Everybody's just responding to the last attack or the last blow or something like that. So it's madness, you see. So the acquisitive gesture does what? It divides and creates rivalry. And after a while, it scandalizes. The original object of desire has ceased to be important. What's important now is simply the rivalry itself. You see what I mean? So it's scandal. That's the definition of scandal that I'm using. Now, how in the world do you get peace out of that? Well, in a crisis-ridden situation, everybody is incredibly susceptible to suggestion, to mimetic suggestion. Now, in the course of that melee, that fighting, Everybody, I'm going to use this term anachronistically, everybody is making an accusatory gesture, hitting or screaming, shouting, some kind of madness. Everybody's accusing their immediate rival of something, so to speak. And one of these accusatory gestures becomes very emphatic. And in a crowd very predisposed to mimetic suggestion, it's picked up by those in the vicinity. A crisis-ridden society welcomes a good accusation. Everybody in a crisis-ridden society is waiting for somebody to make a good accusation they can link in with. You see what I mean? It's very satisfying. So somebody makes an accusation that's very convincing, at least to those within earshot. They pick up on it, and they mimetically replicate it in the same way that we imitate the acquisitive gesture and create the violence. If you imitate the accusatory gesture, the opposite happens because if I imitate your accusation, that means you and I are comrades. We agree on where the problem lies, you see. And if other people get pulled into that, which they will in a crisis-ridden situation, the war of all against all becomes the war of all against one in a heartbeat. And again, there's all kinds of social science for that. So René Girard used mimetic desire, mimetic rivalry, to analyze A, how we become violent, and B, how we create peace out of violence. We don't create peace out of violence. The mimetic phenomenon creates it. It's not as though it's done by any kind of intentionality. It's the way the mimetic phenomenon works. And what it does is it produces unanimity minus one. The crowd is standing around the corpse of the victim, having just done something together, having just become a community. They became a community in the very act of venting all their violence on that one figure. And suddenly they're at peace. All the violence drains into that one figure and is gone. Now, this is puzzling to us, but the way to understand this is to understand Aristotle's notion of catharsis. Aristotle, you know, said to the tragedians, if you get these people worked up in the theater you better be able to purge them of all of this emotionality that you have awakened in the play. You better make sure that there's a cathartic resolution because if not, they're going to go out of the amphitheater and tear Athens apart. You see, you don't want that. You want it to end inside the ritual arena. Uh, So catharsis means you have all of those passions in play and you drain them out. And how do you drain them out? The best way to understand this, it seems to me, is to think about a situation. Let's say it's been a bad week. You've lost your 401k and whatever else in the latest crisis, and you've had a bad day at work. There's a new person on the job who's a real hot shot and doesn't look like things are turning out for you the way it ought to be, and you got a trouble with one of your kids, and you have a squabble with your wife, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, just imagine one of those days. And you're thinking about all those things so much you can't even sleep very well at night. And you wake up the next morning, you're all tied in knots about all these things. And while you're shaving, you turn on the television and you see the second plane fly into the World Trade Center. And all of those things disappear. All of that emotionality is gone. Because you have just experienced a god-awful event. I'm going to use the term a god-awful event. The god-awful event is an event that is so powerful, so shocking, and it involves sudden, dramatic, violent death. It is so shocking that all of those passions simply are drained out of you. They're gone. You have been provided with a cathartic resolution. Another metaphor for that is electroshock. A catharsis is like a social electroshock. It drains all the passions out of the system. I spoke in Oklahoma City not too long after the bombing there, several years ago. That city had been brought together in the most powerful way I've ever seen in my life. And I spoke from a pulpit that Sunday and I said, this is a marvelous what's happened in this city. But you don't want to have to wait around for the next situation which takes several hundred lives in order to live this way. In other words, that cathartic resolution is very powerful and can be, can be very positive. But we should be able to live that way without that cathartic resolution. Christianity is about how to live that way without catharsis. But the ancient world didn't have Christianity. They had catharsis. And when they literally stumbled upon it, suddenly this corpse is there and they're experiencing peace. They say to themselves, what happened? They knew they couldn't have done it. It had to have been the gods, whatever that word means. The gods came, they caused problems, and when this one is dead, there's peace. The question is, how do we perpetuate that peace? Gerard locates the answer in three places, myth, ritual, and prohibition. I'll just mention them very briefly. Prohibition prohibits behavior that would precipitate a real crisis. So you don't steal, lie, kill, sleep with your neighbor's wife, and so on. You don't do those things that would start a soap opera, Spiral out of control, become the Hatfields and the McCoys, become a civil war, and you know all hell would break loose. You don't do those things. So prohibition does that. Ritual is the exact opposite of that. Ritual actually tries to reenact that crisis, but in a very controlled environment. So you get the passions out and you purge them. It's social hygiene. You get all the passions worked up and then you flush them out of the system in the sacrificial denouement. Walter Burkert, who's an anthropologist, speaking of the ancient world, the worshiper experiences the God most powerfully in the deadly blow of the axe, the gush of blood. The realm of the gods is sacred, but the sacred act done at the sacred place by this consecrating actor consists of slaughtering sacrificial victims. And this god-awful event that climaxes the ritual sacrifice purges the society. We're fallen creatures. We rub up against each other. We create conflict and animosity and aggravation with each other all the time. It just builds up. It's like dishes in the sink. It just happens. So in order to purge the society of these animosities before they become a social problem, you periodically have one of these rituals. And what the ritual does is that it reenacts the original crisis the first part of the ritual is very typically two of the moieties or two of the clans in the tribe will perform a mock war. So they'll get ready for war and they'll come with their spears and they'll beat their drums and they'll shout things and they'll run up against each other. And as they do this, all these animosities come out. People get caught up in this drama. It's very powerful. To get these passions out, you have to get them in play. Because most of these passions sit below the surface of awareness. We had to get them out. So the first part of the ritual is to get all of these passions in play. And then the ritual turns and leads toward this god-awful sacrifice, which just purges people of these animosities. And they go away with a sense of social camaraderie. It's a very delicate and very dangerous situation because it could become a real civil war. And it very often did become a real civil war. That's why the priestly class in these ancient societies were so meticulous about the ritual details, because they realized that they were playing with fire, uh, that they were trying to perform a ritual that would purge the society of the passions. But if they turned up the heat too much, it would turn into a real civil war. So that's how the system worked. So you have that. And then the final one is myth. And the function of myth, of course, is to hide the truth from the community. The truth is that the one who died in the original situation and the one who may die in ritual reenactments of it is not, after all, either a monster or a god, but actually. Just somebody who happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. Myth keeps the community from stumbling upon that very inconvenient fact. Because if you stumble upon that fact, the game is up. It doesn't work. It does not purge the community of all of its madness. So the purpose of myth is to keep the truth from the community that can only enjoy the social benefits of this system as long as that truth is kept from them. Fustelle de Collange, by the way, is a French historian in the 19th century, uh, echoing something he said, which is that when it came to religion, the ancients, quote, dared not reason upon it or discuss it or examine it. Echoing that, Walter Burkert writes, quote, the strange and extraordinary events that the participant in the ritual sacrifice is forced to witness are all the more intense because they are left undiscussed. And I want to focus on that for a few minutes. They are left undiscussed because if you discuss them, you might discover more than you want to discover. You might discover something about what really happened rather than the mythological justification or mythological rendition of what happened. So you leave them undiscussed. For example, compare the the founding of Rome with Romulus and Remus to the story of Cain and Abel. Romulus and Remus are two brothers. They're in the business of founding Rome, and they have a little controversy. Romulus builds a wall around what's going to be the city, and Remus says that wall is way too small. And Romulus says, no, it's just fine. And Remus says, no, I'm going to show you it's not good enough. He jumps over it, and Romulus kills him on the spot. So now Rome is named after Romulus, and Remus is never heard of again. He disappears from the story entirely. He's left undiscussed. You go to Cain and Abel, you have two brothers, they're in conflict, they have a rivalry, Cain kills Abel, the blood of Abel cries out to the biblical God, the biblical God hears the blood of Abel, comes down and says to Cain, Cain, where's your brother? You're a murderer, what have you been doing? Everything now depends on Abel. Abel becomes the preoccupation. Jesus says, all the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. That's quite a difference. The pagan world leaves the victim undiscussed completely, and the biblical world talks about nothing else. Myth is a way of remembering the past while leaving the most morally salient feature, namely the truth about the victim whose death brought peace to the community, undiscussed. But that's the very thing that the Jewish and Christian Bible discusses constantly. History begins with that discussion. It ends twice. Once when the truth, the myths, veil is fully and decisively revealed on Golgotha. And finally, when that truth has outlasted all the lies and exposed all the crimes and murders that the lies have covered up and justified, forcing humans living and dead to finally look on him whom they have pierced. The first step in getting a grip on history is to recognize that history has a history. Quote, For over two millennia before Israel was born, the pagan world produced no works of history, writes Richard Elliott Friedman. Quote, the biblical historical narratives are the first known human attempts to write history anywhere on earth, coming hundreds of years before Herodotus in Greece, End quote. But the superiority of Jewish over Greek historiography is not due primarily to the greater antiquity of the Jewish historical narratives, but to the moral and religious significance of these narratives and what they say about the very meaning of history itself. Not one of her neighboring cultures, writes the great Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod, understood the dimension of history in the way that Israel did. The sacral understanding of the world, such as one finds everywhere in antiquity, von Rod writes, is essentially non-historical. So the question is, when and how did the Israelites develop historical consciousness? Which takes us to the story Of Abraham. Now, if you and I were trying to fix the human predicament, this is why we shouldn't be brought into the Trinitarian embrace before we're prepared for it. Because if you and I had had a say in how to fix it, we would have surely made a mess of it. Most surely, we would not have thought of it the way God thinks of it. Our ways are not God's way. We would have probably said, well, look, it's such a mess. The only way we can fix it is to get control of all the cable channels and send them this huge message and get them all to shape up at once. But the biblical God does not operate that way. The biblical God understands that history takes time, and he gives it time. It's a question of changing hearts, one heart at a time. The great criticism of the biblical God is that he's far too patient. We're impatient with God's patience. Now, how can he be so patient? He starts with one person. Now, you have, in order to understand the first gesture... In the Abraham story, let me go back and say something about this sacrificial world, the world that's centered on the sacrificial cult. The sacrificial cult creates what it's appropriate to call a tremendous gravitational field. It binds people together and it keeps them inside their mythological explanation of what's going on. So that is constantly reinforced in these archaic societies. These archaic societies were nothing but ritual from morning to night. They they were inside a constantly thrumming reinforcement of their mythological worldview. The idea of an independent thought is foreign to such a world. So God says to Abraham, come up out of that. You cannot hear the voice of the biblical God when you're inside that bubble. You have to leave. You have to come out into the desert. Joseph Ratzinger said, Monotheism was not able to develop in the great cities and fertile countryside of Mesopotamia. No, it was in the wilderness where heaven and earth face each other in stark solitude that monotheism was able to grow. In the homelessness of the wanderer who put his trust in the God who wanders with him. In my sort of silly version, God said to Abraham, look, Abraham, I'm tired of watching you people go in circle. So come up out of that. And you and I are going to go someplace new. And in my version, Abraham's a kind of the original Bilbo Baggins. So he would say, wait a minute, we don't do new. Uh, what do you mean by new? What what What's that mean? We're going to go someplace new. You see, history is now going to straighten out. It's going to have a purpose. It's not going to keep going back through those cycles. See, And Abraham, like us, would have said, well, where are we going to go? And God would have said, You're on a need-to-know basis. You don't need to know. The only thing you need to know is that I will be with you. That's all you need to know. You and I are still on that basis. All we really know, all we really need to know is that promise. That's the promise. Abraham is the beginning of that promise. But remember that gravitational field that surrounded the sacrificial cult also reinforced the cyclical nature of ancient thought. It's important to recognize the relationship between the gravitational power of the archaic society's sacrificial center and the cyclical fixation of prehistoric thought. Cathartic sacrificial rituals were an expression of the ancient world's fear-ridden determination to recreate an imagined past and remain safely within the orbit of its protection. So the sacrificial cult creates that cyclical thinking. So, for history to begin, three things have to happen. We have to be coaxed out of the immediate sacrificial arena, as Abraham was, into some deserted detox facility where we can begin to recover our senses. If our liberation is to be sustained and others are to be set free, the gravitational power of the sacrificial cult must be weakened. And finally, and most importantly, those thus liberated must learn to live without the sacrificial protections, what Gerard calls the sacrificial protections. The old system actually worked. It saved us from a lot of violence. It kept us more or less peaceful. You see, if you walk away from that, you have to learn to live without it. You see, I mean, that's, that's the important part. Uh, To be liberated, we must learn to live without these sacrificial protections that were provided by the regime of blood sacrifice and to do so by learning how to resist scandal and by developing the capacity for self-renunciation commensurate with the loss of the cathartic power of blood sacrifice. The cathartic power of blood sacrifice was a very important tool in the ancient world. To walk away from it, you have to be able to make up the difference in terms of your own moral and spiritual capacity. So if you look at the story of Abraham, there are two stories that are relevant in this regard. The obvious one is the binding of Isaac. It's not the sacrifice of Isaac because he wasn't sacrificed. It's the binding of Isaac. Abraham goes up Mount Moriah to do what everybody did in those days, which is sacrifice your firstborn. That's the way the world worked. You sacrifice your firstborn so that you have many more. And Abraham went up the mountain to do what everybody always did. And he came back down with Isaac. His contemporaries probably thought to themselves, how did he get off doing that? I didn't get to do that, you see. Uh, The biblical author maybe even had to rehabilitate him in the eyes of his community by insisting that, no, he was willing. Uh, But the point is that the biblical God told him to do something else. The biblical God told him to take a step away from the worst forms of sacrifice. From the most horrendous forms of sacrifice, namely human sacrifice, child sacrifice. The biblical God is coaxing him away, but the biblical God simply says, Look, here's a ram. Offer a ram instead. You see, so it's a it's a small step, but a gigantic step. He doesn't walk away entirely from ritual sacrifice. He just makes that huge move from human sacrifice. To animal sacrifice. But in order to do that, you have to be able to live without the cathartic power that would have come from the god awful effect of a human sacrifice. A human sacrifice has much more of a god awful cathartic power than the sacrifice of a ram. If you're going to surrender that much cathartic power, you're going to have to learn to live without it to that degree, a commensurate degree of spiritual and moral maturation has to occur if you're going to make that step. And you see that, I think, in the story of Abraham and Lot. He's Abraham's nephew. They're both wealthy. They have lots of herds. The herdsmen begin to squabble. So you have this problem again, the problem of conflict and potential violence. So obviously, they're going to have to part ways. Now, they come to the brow of the hill. Abraham is the alpha male. So he could say, I'm going to take the grassy part over there, and you you can take the rocky stubble field over there. But he doesn't do that. He says to Lot, you choose. What's that tell us? It tells us that he understands something about self-renunciation. He understands that the alternative to blood sacrifice is self-sacrifice. In other words, God chose the right guy. <laughs> you see? He made that move. He moves in the direction of self-sacrifice as he moves away from blood sacrifice. That's the essential thing to see, seems to me. History is a moral and anthropological journey from blood sacrifice to self-sacrifice in which every step forward is measured by the contrition of those making it. When pagans looked back, all they saw was the aurora of the golden age and the glories thereof. But when the Jews looked back, they saw one betrayal of their covenant with Yahweh after another, sobering them and rousing them to new fidelity. The latter lived in history and the former lived in myth. That's what's happening in history, I would say. The move from blood sacrifice to self-sacrifice. And Abraham is the father of history in that sense. He's not the end of history. He's not the Lord of history. Christ is the Lord of history because he shows us how to live in it supremely. But Abraham is the father of history, and he's the father of history because of his docility with respect to the biblical God. He said yes. He had no assurance other than God's assurance that I will be with you. And Abraham said yes to that. Christ, who is the Lord of history, said before Abraham was, I am. And it is ultimately Christ who shows us not only how to live in history, but how to enter into the very mystery of time itself. And as von Balthasar insists, the essential thing that Christ shows us is that his life is, quote, a not doing, a not fulfilling, a not carrying out of his own will. In other words, pure docility in the face of the Father's will. I only come to do the will of the one who sent me. So this is the important part about living in history, to learn from Christ, who is the Lord of history, how to live in history. Von Balthazar says, What tells us more than anything else that Jesus' mode of time indeed is indeed real is the fact that he does not anticipate the will of the Father. He does not do that precise thing which we try to do when we sin, which is to break out of time within which are contained God's dispositions for us. And then he goes on to say, Irenaeus and Clement, two church fathers, considered that original sin consisted in anticipation of this kind. And indeed, at the close of the book of Revelation, the reward the son bestows on the victor is the fruit of paradise, which the sinner had stolen in anticipation. That's in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. Quote, To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. End quote. In other words, God intended all along for us to have the fruit of the tree, of the forbidden tree. But in God's time, in God's good time, as we were prepared for it. In other words, there's a preparation for this. Adam could have said, wait, I see it's got my name on it. You see? It did have his name on it. But it wasn't right. It wasn't ready. It, has to, it takes time. History takes time. God gives it time. Now, what von Balthasar and the church fathers here he's quoting are saying is that anticipation, getting ahead of yourself, not realizing that there is a process of maturation, spiritual and moral maturation, that has to take place in time. That's what time's about. That's why we, that's why we have it, because that has to happen. Von Balthasar says, hence the restoration of order by the Son of God has to be the annulment of that premature snatching, the beating down of the outstretched hand, the repentant return to a true slow confinement in time. Hence, and this is the payoff in von Balthasar, hence the importance of patience in the New Testament, which becomes the basic constituent of Christianity. The basic constituent of Christianity is patience, according to von Balthasar. More important even, he says, than humility. The power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitation, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the Lamb that is led, end quote. Patience. What do we Christians do? We wait. That's what we do. That's what we're good at. See? That's what we're paid to do. We wait. And we do all kinds of things while we're waiting. But fundamentally, we wait in joyful hope. What did Adam and Eve do? They didn't wait. What did Cain do? He didn't wait. i want to talk about Cain in a few minutes. The devil tries to get us to lose patience. What are the two great symbols of the spirit of our age? The credit card and the one-night stand, I would say. We don't know how to wait. Joseph Ratzinger speaks of our age's inability to bear the tension of waiting for what is to come. But that's what we Christians do, according to von Balthasar. We are patient. We wait. Von Balthasar says, The disciple must follow in the footsteps of Christ, living as he did in time, open, trusting, without care, without preconceived plan, without anticipating the Father's will. He must live in time, and not attempt to rise above it. He must stand in readiness, trying to understand the signs of the times and the message they convey, but not imposing upon time a meaning he himself has evolved, This must not be mistaken for passivity. Rather, it is in the spirit of Paul's statement in Romans that we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Christians wait, yes, but while we wait, we transform the world and improve our own lives and the lives of others, both spiritually and materially. Nor must this be mistaken for the New Age notion of living in the moment. On the contrary, the patience and availability of which von Balthasar speaks is due to one's being embedded in a historically unfolding drama In which one has a small but indispensable role to play, and which is made possible by those who have gone before and will only be brought to fruition by those yet unborn participants in the drama, those who, as Dante says, will look on these as the ancient days. For centuries, the palpable reality of this embeddedness in a great historical drama has been dissolving, gradually leaving the isolated individual. In Walker Percy's phrase, lost in the cosmos. Or as Leonard Cohen said in a song I'm going to quote here in a few minutes, uh, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overtaken the order of the soul. For a glimpse into that existential situation, which is the loss of our understanding of our place in the historical drama, this isolated individual which loses its sense of participation in a great drama. For a glimpse of that, I'm going to quote to you from a passage in the works of the political philosopher Leo Strauss. He says, Not a few people who have come to despair of the possibility of a decent secularist society without having been induced by their despair to question secularism as such. So we have to put all that together. These are people, he said, who despair of a decent secularist society, but they haven't yet despaired of secularism itself. Those are the people he's talking about. He says such people escape into the self. And then he says, one may say that the self putting its trust in itself and therefore in man is cursed. But this cursed self-fashioning self, Strauss says, is an unwilling witness of biblical faith. For the unbelief in question is in no sense pagan, but shows at every point that it is the unbelief of men who or whose parents were Christians and Jews so what he's talking about is using the word self is a is the loss of this connectedness and the isolation of falling out of that drama which is the historical drama but it's embedded in a community moving through history past and future and so now dropped out of that drama living this life of the self. Strauss says, these are haunted men, deferring to nothing higher than themselves. They lack guidance. They lack thought and discipline. Instead, they have what they call sincerity. Whether sincerity, as they understand it, is necessary, must be left open until one can determine whether the sincerity is inseparable from shamelessness. The self, he concludes, the self that is not deferential is an absurdity. The self that appeals for its moral and ontological legitimacy to its own sincerity is a self-constituted, self-actualized self, in other words, an absurdity. The word absurd, by the way, means to be deaf, to not be able to hear what we should be able to hear. Recovering Christian faith necessarily requires that we attune ourselves again to the mysteries to which we have grown deaf. Apropos of which, and with apologies for an autobiographical interlude here, I'm going to tell you a dream that I had 30 years ago. Again, I apologize for the autobiography, but it occurred to me as I was putting these notes together. In this dream, I was walking alone on a the street. There were cracks and weeds growing up in the street, so obviously nothing had happened in the street a long time. So it's just kind of abandoned like a ghost town or something. And I'm walking down the street, not sure of what's happening. And then I begin to hear some music very faintly. And then after a while, I notice that I'm carrying a crutch, uh, like a crutch if you have a broken leg. But I'm not using it. I'm just carrying it. And then I walk along and the music grows a little louder. And I begin to listen to the music a little bit. And I'm walking along this road. And then the music grows louder. And I realize I'm kind of walking in tune with the music. I'm kind of Getting caught up in the music a little bit, and then I notice that I've begun to sort of use this crutch like a drum major would use a baton you know I'm just in in keeping with the music It's got a little rubber tip on it, and I'm bouncing the rubber tip on the pavements you know and bouncing and catching it and do, I'm doing like this it's like I'm in a parade, you know, but the music grows, and then I realize that I am in a parade that there are people way ahead of me and people way behind I can't see them but that this is really a parade. And so I began to think about that and hope to catch sight of them and so on. And I walk along and uh, then I come to a fork in the road and I don't know which way to go. And I know somehow that whichever way I go will influence the people behind me, even though they can't see me and I can't see them. So it's a moment of real sobriety it's like my goodness what shall i do i have this responsibility this moment and i wake up sorry about that robert frost said i shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence two roads diverge in the wood and i i took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference but he says early in that same poem they were really pretty much traveled the same you see uh, but the point is that by the grace of God, you and I have taken a road that led us to this room tonight. But we were only able to do so thanks to that great cloud of witnesses who have preceded us and without whom we would never have found this room or felt beckoned to join the great procession, a procession which is the very heart and soul of history itself. History begins with Abraham. It's fulfilled in Christ, who's the consummation of it. And the question is, how do we live in the meantime? The meantime. That's the middle time in which we live. The question is, how are we doing? If we're children of Abraham, if the move is from blood sacrifice to self-sacrifice, where are we? How are we doing? Okay, having stirred things up with Abraham, I'm going to make it worse with Cain. Compare Cain. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Cain offered the first fruits of his harvest. You could say Cain was right. Cain was moving away from blood sacrifice. If the journey of history is from blood sacrifice to self-sacrifice, Cain was ahead of Abel. You see what I mean? Again, this is just an anthropological analysis. This is not a biblical analysis. But you could say that Cain was taking a bigger step. Cain renounced the sacrificial protections and the terrors and taboos by which they were enforced before he was spiritually and morally prepared to live without these things before we might say the Torah had been written on his heart. We could say that the children of Cain do likewise. They correctly sense that they must take a step in the historical journey, but they overreach, imagining the human condition to be more perfectible than it is and assigning themselves a historical role for which they are spiritually unprepared, exhilarated by a sense of advancing in history so dramatically They try to take control of history, and in doing so, their loftiest ideals turn to murder. All utopian romantics are children of Cain, and all modern ideologies have an element of utopian romanticism in them. They all eventually turn lethal, as Walker Percy recognized when he said, quote, more people have been killed in this century by tender-hearted souls than by cruel barbarians in all other centuries put together, end quote. By tender-hearted, I think what Percy means is people who have ceased to believe in original sin and in the Augustinian realism it fosters. For people who ignore sin are dangerously naive about the human predicament, and they all too easily fall for absurdly romantic recipes for improving society. Their earnestness compels them to rationalize more and more the suffering caused by their overreaching Faustian ambitions. The more earnest they are, or as Percy would say, the more tender-hearted, the more savage they eventually become. Such utopian optimists forget that they are in history and that history takes time and that God gives it time. Every step away from the ancient system of sacred violence demands of those who take it greater personal responsibility, more moral stamina, and higher degrees of spiritual interiority. Speaking of the ideologies that sprang up in the post-Christian West, the English historian Christopher Dawson says, quote, Today the political myths and ideologies which modern man creates are no less bloodthirsty than the gods of the heathens and which demand an even greater tribute in human sacrifice, end quote. The last two popes have given us the essential vocabulary, what John Paul II famously and perceptively called the culture of death, is sinking its roots ever deeper into the once rich soil of Western civilization. And Benedict XVI has aptly dubbed it the dictatorship of relativism, the latter designations explicitly calling attention to the emerging totalitarian imperative by which the post-Christian culture of death is now being driven. This is the issue I want to explore for a few minutes, an issue exemplified in a recent document issued by the International Planned Parenthood Federation, a document that argues that governments are obliged to guarantee a sweeping definition of sexual rights, including abortion, sexual freedom, comprehensive sexuality education, as an integral component of human rights. I spoke in an earlier session about the inherent link between the sexual revolution and the unlimited abortion license. This is nowhere more clearly manifest than in the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, declaration, which not only reiterated the determination to remove any and all restrictions on abortion, but which defines sexual rights as, quote, an evolving concept that encompasses sexual activity, gender identity, sexual orientation, eroticism, pleasure, intimacy, and reproduction, end quote. The inclusion of the word reproduction and the foregoing litany was, of course, obligatory, but reproduction is a problematic word in Planned Parenthood lectionary. It is the natural consequence of sexuality which Planned Parenthood has long labored to eliminate. So, to clear up the confusion, the IPPF report hastens to add that, quote, no woman shall be condemned to forced maternity as a result of having exercised her sexuality. We should parse that sentence. We should think about that sentence. No woman shall be condemned to forced maternity as a result of having exercised her sexuality. When future historians are digging through the rubble trying to figure out what happened to the greatest civilization in the history of the world, which disappeared in a historical heartbeat, if they stumble upon that sentence, they'll have a clue. Imagine showing that to anybody in the world who lived before 1975. No woman shall be condemned to forced maternity as a result of having exercised her sexuality. This sentence shows just how deeply alienated the ideologues have become from moral, emotional, and anthropological reality. Islamic radicals must be laughing all the way to the maternity ward. You know, Mark Stein said the future belongs to those who show up for it. Like the IPPF, some of the most powerful international and multinational agencies to which many nation states are incrementally surrendering their sovereignty are working not only to make unlimited access to abortion a universal right, but to turn this right into the international litmus test for measuring the human rights commitments of the nations these international agencies are ready to reward for their compliance. The European Union Network of Independent Experts has published a document challenging conscience protection for medical professionals and promoting abortion as a human right. Even more brazenly, a report by what's called the Expert Group of the UN Division for the Advancement of Women states that laws against abortion on demand are a form of violence against women. End quote. Think about that. Laws against abortion on demand are a form of violence against women. Believe it or not, the people who talk this way began their ideological descent into incoherence as tender-hearted sentimentalists, moral antinomians so sensitive to the feelings of others that they make a moral principle out of their refusal to make a moral judgment, especially in the area of sexuality and the abortion license requisite to its uninhibited expression. Now, here comes a sentence I spent a good deal of time compacting. I said last night, this sentence has three paragraphs in it. And Randy tonight said to me, you should go ahead and read the three paragraphs. because It's too dense. Anyway, here it is. This is my comment on this thing about laws against abortion are a form of violence against women. Forced to borrow moral justification for their indifference to the real victims of abortion from the empathy for victims which Christianity awakens, they are led by a predictable and labyrinthine logic to the conclusion that to refuse to kill a child in the mother's womb is violence against women. They have to use the Christian ethic, which is triumphant, which is the ethic of the victim. So they have to use that ethic in order to neutralize the concern for the real victim of abortion. Forced to borrow moral justification for their indifference to the real victims of abortion from the empathy for victims which Christianity awakens, they are led by a predictable but labyrinthine logic to the conclusion that to refuse to kill a child in the mother's womb is violence against women. It seems to me this is precisely the breezy, self-deluding doublespeak that Leonard Cohen was renouncing in the lyrics of his song, The Future, where he seems to prefer good old-fashioned Jewish realism or what I would call good old-fashioned Augustinian realism to the utopian dreams that end in murder. Here's Leonard Cohen's song. You may know it. I can't sing it to you. He can't either, really, but he, it's his song, so he, he gets to do whatever he wants to do with it. But anyway, here are the lyrics of it. Give me back the Berlin Wall. Give me Stalin and St. Paul. I've seen the future, baby. It is murder. Things are going to slide in all directions. Won't be nothing, nothing you can measure anymore. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. When they said repent, I wonder what they meant. You don't know me from the wind. You never will. You never did. I'm the little Jew who wrote the Bible. I've seen the nations rise and fall. I've heard their stories, heard them all. But love's the only engine of survival your servant here he's been told to say it clear to say it cold it's over it ain't going any further and now the wheels of heaven stop you feel the devil's riding crop get ready for the future it is murder destroy another fetus now we don't like children anyhow i've seen the future baby it is murder when they said repent i wonder what they meant things are going to slide in all directions it won't be nothing nothing you can measure anymore would make an apt designation for the evolution of international norms, increasingly prominent among them, the right of parents to hire a professional to kill a child in the mother's womb. What has been universally condemned for millennia as an unspeakable crime and a moral abomination is evolving into the touchstone of enlightened morality by which the sincerity, and I use the word in the Straussian sense here, by which the sincerity of our commitment to human rights is being measured. The incremental success of these efforts has given legal and political legitimacy to the greatest moral atrocity in history, the killing of millions upon millions of innocent children in the womb. Nothing in history compares with it, neither in the number of lives lost or the innocence and defenselessness of the victims. Worldwide in the last quarter century alone, as many as 1 billion children, have been intentionally killed. A tiny fraction of that staggering number have died during the same period in all the wars and all other forms of violence combined. The most disturbing thing about the sort of moralizing amorality exemplified by the IPPF report, however, the thing that most explicitly reveals the totalitarian mentality of its proponents, surfaces in the IPPF's insistence that all women have a right to abortion services, quote, independently of the objection of health service providers, end quote. In other words, abortion trumps religious freedom. And now the wheels of heaven stop you feel the devil's riding crop. Nor is the International Planned Parenthood Federation out of line with other powerful international forces busily at work reshaping the moral landscape of Europe and beyond, not by way of public debate or rational persuasion, but by judicial and quasi-judicial rulings and decrees and administrative edicts. In an article in November 24th of this year, Hillary White reports on these various international institutions where there is an emerging no-tolerance consensus among these international agencies on the question of abortion rights. She writes, quote, "Opinion among the international and transnational organizations that make up the working groups of the UN and the EU is moving strongly against the concept of conscientious objection for medical professionals who oppose abortion, euthanasia and like practices end quote. And so the multicultural lullaby turns into the monocultural lockdown. No one can doubt the sincerity of the International Planned Parenthood Federation or that of its allies and enablers at the UN and EU, the only question, as Strauss aptly said, is whether this sincerity is inseparable from shamelessness. As the movement to elevate the heartbreaking atrocity of abortion to a status of fundamental human rights and to remove all restrictions on the genetic cannibalizing of embryonic human life, as these things have grown in strength and extended their reach There have been only two formidable obstacles to them on the international scene, the United States government and the Roman Catholic Church. After January 20th, there will be one. So the question is, how are we doing, we who are the heirs of the Abrahamic Revolution? And the resounding answer is the answer Jesus gave to his interlocutors in John's Gospel, which is, this Abraham did not do. This is a blatant reversal of what happened on Mount Moriah. Jesus made a whip of cords and drove the profiteers of blood sacrifice from the Jerusalem temple, reminding us that the passive and saccharine Christ, who would never be so uncharitable as to make a moral judgment, is a myth and a travesty. Some of us will be called to challenge the sacrificial profiteers of our day at work as they are in the abortion clinics and the embryo destructive research facilities, and in the sundry death works that have set up shop in our culture. Most of us, however, will be called to moral responsibilities closer to home and of a more personal nature. But in either case, we will all do well to remember what von Balthasar said about, quote, the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, end quote. Rather than play the hero or the titan, the Christian task is to be in history as Jesus was, which is to say precisely to not do, not fulfill, not carry out our own will. The way of patience, shame, and suffering, writes von Balthasar, is the way of not choosing what man of himself desires, which is happiness. Man of himself desires happiness. The self desires happiness. But the soul longs for communion with the true and the good and the beautiful. The path through which, in this veil of tears, requires patience and the readiness, when necessary, to endure shame and suffering. In the years ahead, we are likely to face the choice between being ashamed of Christ and His church or being shamed by the world for refusing to be. If we are given the grace to persevere, hold out, and endure to the end, we will be in very good company. For the path of patience, shame, and suffering is perhaps best exemplified respectively by Abraham, Mary, and Jesus. History in fact can be seen as a journey from Abraham's yes to Mary's yes to Jesus's yes in the Garden of Gethsemane. This, of course, would come as a complete surprise to CNN, Fox News, and NPR, but there are probably other surprises in store for them as well. In January, we'll come back to Mary's yes and talk about the Incarnation, and in February, to Jesus' supreme yes, and talk about the crucifixion. In the meantime, as we transition from Abraham's yes to Mary's yes, it's worth remembering something that Christopher Dawson said. Quote, The church remains the guardian of the secret of history. That's the takeaway thing for tonight. The church remains the guardian of the secret of history. He goes on to say, The church remains the guardian of the secret of history, And the organ of the work of human redemption, which goes on ceaselessly through the rise and fall of kingdoms and the revolutions of social systems. These things happen. Kingdoms come and go. Civilizations come and go. Ours will go. But the church remains the guardian of the secret of history, which brings us back to where we started, precisely because she is the guardian of the secret of history knowing as she does its final outcome without knowing its particular the church teaches her faithful how to wait in joyful hope the victory over sin evil and death was accomplished on golgotha that victory is complete but unfinished if you don't have an appetite for paradox you you can't get very far down the christian road uh, that's a paradox that we have to live with it's complete but unfinished, and the church and her faithful know that their task in history is to live in light of that victory and to patiently bear witness to it. And the preeminent school in which we learn the patience, perseverance, and endurance appropriate to Jesus' mode of time is the liturgy. It is there where we learn, in von Balthasar's words, to return to a true slow confinement in time. It is when our lives are lived in the tempo of liturgical life that even our simplest tasks and humblest missions attain a degree of sacramentality through which a little light shines in an otherwise darkening world. The American poet Richard Wilbur gives us a wonderful picture of someone who in moving in tempo with the liturgical time and living in tune with a sacramental vision becomes an anonymous conduit of grace. Whatever you and I might be called to do with our lives, if we are to live in time the way Abraham, Mary, and Jesus did, we might try to perform our duties in a way comparable to the way the woman in Wilbur's poem performed hers as aware as she of the grand procession of which we a part, and aware as well that those who play the humblest and less conspicuous roles in this great drama are the very ones on whom its final triumph depends. Here's Richard Wilbur's poem, which I have loved for years and years. It is 17 years come tomorrow that Bruna Sandoval has kept the church of San Ysidro sweeping and scrubbing the aisles, keeping the candlesticks and plaster faces bright, and seeing no visions but the thing done right, from the clay porch to the white altar. For love, and in all weathers, this is what she has done. Sometimes the early sun shines as she flings the scrub water out with a crash of grimy rainbows, and the stained suds flash like angel feathers. Patience is the essential Christian virtue. We must learn how to be in time, our eyes wide open like children, like children, but patient. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in His mercy may He give us a safe lodging a holy rest, and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot o-r-g. Thank you for your interest in our work.